And so, have you made any good deals lately? Not really? Okay. We love it, though, when we think we're getting a good one. And people know this about us. And that's why when we go to our mailboxes or we find ourselves browsing around online, that we are inundated with flyers and pop-ups and ads and just things that are oozing with opportunities and great deals for us to take advantage of. Which often leads to those five words that strike terror into the heart of any household budget. But it was on sale. <laughs> we do love it when we think we're getting a good deal. But what's probably even more significant than that is what we sometimes think it is that actually makes something a good deal. Or how our ideas of what a good deal really is get shaped by the values and the ideas that just sort of seep into us from the world that we live in. For example, have you ever noticed how good deals are usually all about us? Typically how much I was able to get for such a low price and how they are almost never about how well somebody else made out when they were doing business with us. In fact, it's really interesting to me that the concept of stewardship, which is supposed to be about the privilege we have of managing God's gifts and resources, an amazingly generous and gracious God in the way that he gives, managing those resources in a way that reflects the things that matter to him and are important to him, how that sometimes can get reduced to getting the most we can for as little as possible. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for careful financial management, and I can sharpen my pencil as well as any of you can. But I think it's also worth asking the question every now and then, if how the way we've kind of been conditioned to think about things might have influenced, maybe even changed a bit, perception of what a really good deal actually is. So that not unlike many people living in the time of Jesus, we might find ourselves with our focus having been just kind of subtly redirected, and we run the risk of missing what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law, the big picture stuff that's actually supposed to shape the details of how we live and not the other way around. And probably also, not unlike the way of people who lived in the time of Jesus, we can sometimes find ourselves missing the big picture, not because we're rebelliously trying to do that, but simply because we've internalized ways of thinking. It's just, you know, kind of like the air we breathe. Things like the forces of self-interest and consumerism that often drive our ideas of what the best deal is sometimes to the extent that we don't realize just how much that really does impact and splash over into the way we relate to each other and sometimes even into the way we relate to God. Because what it is that shapes us for better or for worse is often not so much a matter of what we do or don't know about things, but how we understand or think about the things that we do or don't know. You see, getting what we know into the right frame is important. Otherwise, no matter how much we may know, in all the ways that really matter, we can turn out to be pretty clueless. Well, one of the places in Scripture where I think we get a pretty good glimpse of what I'm trying to get at here this morning is found in John chapter 3. 
And if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd just like to invite you to go with me there to the third chapter in John's Gospel, which is at least a partial transcript of a meeting that took place one evening between Jesus and a rather well-known teacher of the law. It's a conversation that in some significant ways is all about knowing and all about not knowing and about how we think about the things that we do. Now, while we often treat this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus as if it were kind of this freestanding story, kind of there all by itself, in isolation from what's going on around it, what you actually discover if you take a step back and kind of look at it in its context is that there seems to be instead this kind of ongoing theme which includes this train of thought about knowing and not knowing that has been woven all through John's gospel from the very beginning on down to the end. But rather than take you all the way back to the beginning to pick up the train of thought, what I'd like to do is give you an opportunity to pick up this theme that we might otherwise miss when we look at chapter three just by going back a page or so to the beginning of chapter two and see if we can kind of pick up the way it rolls. And so if you just kind of turn back a page to chapter two, we see that the chapter opens with this very familiar story of Jesus going to this wedding in the little town of Cana in Galilee. And of course, what Jesus is best known for at this story is that this is the place where he turns the water into wine. But it's here in the midst of this story that we find Jesus saying and doing some things that are worth pausing for a moment and just noticing. They're things that are somewhat at odds with the generally accepted assumptions that uh, go along with the way weddings are supposed to go at this time. In fact, as you look down about verse nine or 10, you begin to read about how the master of the banquet at this wedding feast, who knew, it says, notice the theme there, that you always put out the best wine first and then the cheaper stuff later when people won't notice, is surprised because with Jesus involved in the process, even though he probably didn't know Jesus was involved right at this point, this whole thing had gotten completely turned around. Conventional accepted wisdom about what everybody knew suddenly was standing on its head and something richer and more profound actually emerges in its place. The best stuff comes towards the end. And it's interesting in the story that John comments, this was the first of the miraculous signs that Jesus did that revealed his glory which of course gives us already a clue that there's something more going on here than just providing refreshments. There's something significant about what's happening. Well, okay, so as we continue on in chapter two, we notice that the very next thing that happens is Jesus arrives at the temple in Jerusalem and we see a very similar kind of thing happening again. In contrast to the conventional wisdom of the time of how the temple was supposed to be run according to the temple leadership, who knew how important it was for these traveling worshipers, by the way, to be able to purchase their sacrifices at the temple so they wouldn't have to kind of bother with them along the way. And of course, for the leaders to make a tidy profit in the process. Jesus comes in and acts in a way that's not exactly in compliance with established temple policy. And he tries to reframe everyone's understanding of what is really going on in the temple that day. Beginning with verse 14, it describes it like this. Let me read to you what it says. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle 
sheep and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. He drove all of them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? See, Jesus walks into the scene and objects to the way they had allowed marketplace thinking to shape and frame an experience that was supposed to be about living in worshipful response to God and what God had done. The whole idea of the temple is primarily a relational thing where people came to connect with God and to respond in worship. That whole experience had become distorted by a different set of priorities that just sort of wormed their way into the life of the temple. And of course, what we see in the rest of chapter two, as Jesus tries to get them to think about the temple differently now, is that because they could not or would not allow Jesus to reframe for them how they thought about the temple and what they knew about it, they completely missed the significance of what Jesus was trying to share with them. You see, how they knew what they knew got in the way of what they needed to know. Not so best because everything that they thought was wrong, although there were a few things that could have been corrected, but because of the way they thought about it. That is what distorted things for them. So much to the extent that at the end of chapter two, you find these curious comments in the last couple of verses, which most of us kind of just brush over as we're reading the stories. It says that while some did believe in Jesus because of the amazing signs he did and the things that he said, Jesus could not entrust himself to them. Though some believed because of the signs, Jesus knew he couldn't trust himself with them. Because despite all they thought they knew, Jesus knew they still didn't really know. Or as J.B. Phillips puts it in his translation of verse 25, which I think captures it really well. Jesus did not need anyone to tell him what people were like. He understood human nature. Jesus knew that despite all that they knew, they still didn't really get it. And actually, he was not safe with them because of it. And so it's in the wake of all of this that we already see happening in chapter 2, and this theme is all through the gospel, but at least here you can kind of pick up the thread. You find this same train of thought now continuing on as we watch what happens in chapter 3 as this continues to unfold a conversation that is also about knowing and not knowing. A conversation that begins like this in verse one. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with him. And so Nicodemus comes confident about what he knows, to which Jesus responds like this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. As if Jesus is saying, okay, I get where you're going with all of that miraculous sign stuff and everything, but here's the thing. Truly, I tell you, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's kind of an interesting response, isn't it? Jesus doesn't seem to even get into the content of what's on Nicodemus' mind or what he says he knows so much about. But instead, he invites Nicodemus to change the framework for how he's thinking about what is on his mind. He changes the picture. To which Nicodemus, staying true to form, responds like this in verse 4. Well, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You know, teacher of the law that he was, he is still apparently focusing in on the details, the trees, if you would. How can someone be born when they're old? How do you take this apart and see how it works? But once again, Jesus shifts the focus back to a bigger picture, the forest, perhaps, and once again invites him to wrap his mind around a different image. So what he says in verse 5. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus continues to try to nudge Nicodemus towards the realization that what he's really looking for is found less in dissecting all of the arguments and figuring out all the details as it is in focusing on the correct picture. And so Jesus tries to change the picture in his head. He continues in verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. It says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. In other words, quit trying to diagram it, okay? It says, so it is with everyone who is born with the Spirit. So again, what Jesus gives him is not some new point to argue, some new insight that becomes one of his religious talking points, but he continues to give Nicodemus a different frame to put his thoughts in a different picture for him to wrap around the things that he believes. To all of which Nicodemus finally says, how can these things be? To which Nicodemus responds by saying, indeed, you are Israel's teacher and you don't know. The guy who came knowing actually doesn't know at all. Apparently it's quite possible to know a lot of stuff and still not really know. Not because we're not smart, not because we're not adequately informed, not because we haven't taken all the right studies, but because we don't have things framed properly as part of the right picture. And then in the rest of chapter three, Jesus goes on to do just that for Nicodemus, to place the stuff he knows in the context of the right picture so that Nicodemus can get it so that Nicodemus can understand. He tells Nicodemus about how the children of Israel in the wilderness, just as they found healing, as they looked at a symbol of what was afflicting them, lifted up on a pole, in a similar way, he was going to be lifted up. And when people would see him willingly absorbing into himself the worst that evil could inflict on him, and what they saw there, they too would find healing. And what were they supposed to see there exactly? Jesus goes on to explain. 
And he goes on to explain in the text that we already know so well. He says, because God loved the world so much, he gave himself so that whosoever believes in him, whosoever would grasp that as the central defining picture of what everything was about, they would find eternal life, the life that he had come to offer. In fact, Jesus goes on to make it very clear that he didn't come into the world to ferret out what was faulty about us so he could condemn us, but so we could find salvation and healing. Because what motivates God, and John is very clear about this in this chapter and in other places in this gospel as well, it's not a determination to make sure that the penalties are all correctly assigned to the faulty people so that the guilty are properly punished. But what motivates God is a desire to love and to heal and to redeem. In fact, he goes on to point out in the rest of this chapter that the only real verdict in the end, the only real penalty, is all about whether or not we accept the light, the gift of love that is offered to us, or whether or not we refuse to look away and walk away. See, the issue for Nicodemus was not so much his lack of information, but that the way he was thinking about what he did know was flawed. The big overall picture for him had been distorted. And so Jesus responds to his inquiry by helping him to frame his questions differently. He says, you're asking the wrong questions. This is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus had been getting at back in the Sermon on the Mount, which you might remember. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, don't think that I've come to do away with what you know, not come to do away with the law and the prophets. Rather, I have come to fulfill them, to show them what they really are about, what they really mean, to restore a clearer picture so you can think about them in ways that don't distort the picture of who I really am so that you can see what it means to live in the light of what they've been trying to say. It's all about getting the right picture. But keeping that in focus is really not easy for us, which we see evidence not only in the kind of controversies that sometimes we get so wound up in as a church. You know, things like, uh, I don't know, which room is Jesus in and when did he get there? Or how many hours are in a creation day? Or how many angels can dance on the head of a pin if you want to go back a few years longer? Or whatever the current prophetic conspiracy theory is that seems to be kind of stirring in the wind these days. You know, there's always that kind of stuff to get us off track. But maybe even more than that, our remembering of this is also hindered in a more subtle and probably more pervasive and damaging way by those ways of thinking that are so familiar to us, that are so normal to us, that seem so much a part of our day in and day out lives, that we don't often even notice how they are distorting the big picture of who God really is and what he's trying to share with us. And one of the places this shows up has to do with how we often think about what it means to make a deal finally back to that again. And let me explain why we're back there. You see, one of the ways of thinking about things that is deeply embedded in our culture and which impacts and shapes our relationships with God and each other in ways that we probably don't even realize 
and which can set us off blindfolded down the same kind of paths that many in the time of Jesus were traveling, can be described as our tendency to think about our relationships with each other and with God and the deals that we make more in terms of a contract mindset than a covenant mindset. Let me explain that, what I mean by that. And the reason why that is so significant doesn't have so much to do with what's actually in those entities as the kind of relationship that they describe. Now, most of us, even though we may not always understand the language that they're written in, have no problem at all understanding kind of how a contract works or what it means to enter into a contract with someone. But what we're probably becoming less and less familiar with these days is the kind of relationships that the scriptures actually describe that God is inviting us into, which the scriptures describe as a covenant. And a covenant is something fundamentally different. See, one of the few surviving examples of covenants in our culture today is probably the covenant of marriage. But even that is not immune from being thought about and treated from time to time as if it were a contract rather than a covenant. But as Greg Boyd so eloquently points out in his book, Benefit of the Doubt, a book that I've mentioned to you before, and if you haven't read yet, you really ought to get the book and read it. While covenants and contracts may look very similar on the surface, they are actually worlds apart in how they work because they involve an entirely different way of thinking about how we interact with each other. And that's important because if we read the scriptures and think about our faith and our walk with God with contracts rather than covenants in our mind, it will completely distort everything. And we will miss what Jesus is saying as completely as did those that we just read about in the scriptures. Contracts and covenants are two fundamentally different kinds of deals that we make. And they are shaped by two different kinds of concerns. And that actually becomes pretty clear to us if we just kind of stop and think about it for a moment. Which, by the way, is something that we rarely do with those assumptions that we make that we don't really think much about but which powerfully shape our lives. So, okay, if someone comes to you and tells you that, wow, I've got this really good deal that someone has offered to me, seems almost too good to be true, but I'm ready to sign on the line, what is the first thing that we want, usually say to them? Oftentimes we will say to them, did you get it in writing? Do you have it in writing? Which is another way of saying, do you have a contract? Because the purpose of a contract is to ensure that the other party acts in a way that is going to protect your interests. But if somebody comes to you and says, hey, guess what? I am engaged to be married. Our response is, generally speaking, somewhat different than that. Because the kind of relationship that marriage is is not based on a contract. It is based on a covenant. You see, people enter into covenants because they trust each other and are willing to commit everything they are to the other person. People enter into legally binding contracts, however, precisely because they don't. That's why we have contracts. 
or at least they're not willing to risk it without getting it in writing so that there are legal remedies available if somebody decides to renege on what they said they would do. So while contracts are very self-oriented and are there to design to protect us from each other, covenants, on the other hand, are very other-oriented, and they're about people pledging themselves to each other. Contracts are primary, primarily informational documents, so you better watch the fine print because that's where you'll get hung up. Covenants, however, are primary... Did I say relational? They're informational documents. Covenants, however, are primarily relational documents in which people who enter into them look out for the interests of each other. Contracts are made valid by the strength of the document. Covenants are made valid by the commitment of the people. Contracts may rely on penalties to provide motivation and ensure compliance. Covenants, however, rely on love and are held together by commitment to each other. Contracts may be written on paper or stone and often set out the minimum requirements for compliance around which litigation might ensue if you don't meet the minimum requirements. Covenants, however, are described as being written on the heart and find expression in deeply investing in others, going well beyond the minimum requirements, even when it's hard and costly to do so. Assurance and security in a contract is conditional. Assurance and security in a covenant, however, is a given, because they are the kind of things that are like to death do us part. Contracts are broken if terms are violated and then the guilty party is made to pay. Covenants fail only if someone walks away from the relationship because you can't force participation in the covenant. And when covenants are not adequately honored, everyone in the transaction experiences the pain. Sometimes the most faithful suffering the most, not because it's fair, and not because it's easy, but because that's the way covenants work. But when restoration is genuinely sought and achieved, everyone also gets to share in the joy. And sometimes I know things go badly enough that the best you can hope for is a good measure of healing in the midst of things. But it's a fundamentally different kind of relationship than a contract. What the scriptures want us so much to see that what God invites us into is a covenant. But what we too often find ourselves doing is recasting it as if it were a contract. And so a lot of anxiety is generated and we worry about what might be in the fine print or we find ourselves looking for loopholes that we think might benefit us somehow or for those hidden clauses that God might find that would provide him with a reason to cancel it for failure to comply. We worry about it. There might be some detail somewhere in the books that would compel God under the terms of the contract to disqualify us. And no matter how many times Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. There is lots of room in my father's house, and if there wasn't, I would have told you. If we are locked into contract thinking as if our salvation was merely some sort of legal transaction in a celestial courtroom where you might get tripped up on a legality or some point of, of order, rather than the celebration of a bride and a bridegroom, 
we will continue to miss much of what Jesus is trying to show Nicodemus in the story and what he continues to try to show us. As he tried to nudge him away from a way of thinking that was all about mastering the fine print, the stuff that he thought he knew that made him feel secure, to the more relational framing images of giving birth, of new life, watching for the sometimes unexpected but refreshing ways the spirit moves that might be difficult to chart, but whose effects can be seen in the lives of people in ways that you can't deny. That's the kind of picture that he tried to shift him towards. The picture of a God whose love and commitment was expressed by his willingness to give himself because he loved the world so much and to hold nothing back. A God who came not looking for ways to condemn, but to save. And you know, down through the years, lots of metaphors have been used by lots of people to try to illustrate how this whole transaction works. Buying back of slaves, acquittal in a court of law, blood poured upon altars, and then people get together and they try to argue about which is the right metaphor. Most of these ideas, by the way, not surprisingly, were developed by people whose original training were as lawyers. So that tells you something. But like all illustrations, if you push any of them too far, they begin to break down, and they can wind up distorting the bigger reality they're trying to illustrate by shifting us back toward a contractual way of thinking about our relationship with God rather than a covenantal way of thinking about our relationship with God. But when we're willing to see things the way that Jesus invites us to, it is probably the words of Scripture themselves that describe the best for us, the covenant imagery that God really does want us to wrap our minds around and use to understand the kind of deal that he wants to make with us. Here's how he describes it. First in Deuteronomy 7, and listen to it again, this time as a covenant, not in a contractual way of thinking, and see how it sounds differently. Deuteronomy 7, beginning with verse 6, this is how he describes the original covenant. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God chose you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. In verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you hear what that covenant is rooted in, what it grows out of, what it's based on and what it's all about? It's not how great we are or how well we're performing, but about God's love and faithfulness to us that we can count on. And then listen once more as it's described in Jeremiah 31 in anticipation of Jesus coming and making the picture even clearer. Here's how Jeremiah anticipates how when Jesus came, the picture would be clear. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is a renewal of that covenant, if you will. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Do you hear it in the passage? The kind of deal that God is offering us is not a contract. Contracts are all about mutual self-interest because we're not really sure we're safe or secure with the party we're doing business with. And we need to be wary and we need to be careful and be very, very sure we don't do anything that would cause it to be revoked. That's a different kind of relationship. Rather, the deal that God offers us is a covenant where what binds us together is the assurance of God's love and faithfulness to us that does not end, no matter what happens, to which we respond by loving God and each other in exactly the same way, because that's the kind of people we're becoming, and that's what we've committed our lives to. We may not always get it right, or do it flawlessly, but that is what we are invested in. That's what we want to be about. That's where our lives are going. Not protecting our own self-interest, but loving like we've been loved. Living in the embrace of a covenant that says, I am here for you to my last living breath. Knowing that even if we falter, that God is still faithful. What God offers us, however, you want to illustrate it, is not just some sort of transaction that happens in some far-off celestial court someplace, but a very personal, relational investment in our lives. God gave himself. There's nothing left for God to give. And it was to that way of seeing that Jesus sought to shift the contours of Nicodemus's thinking that evening. And it's to that way of thinking that Jesus would love to shift the contours of ours. That's the kind of deal he makes with us, the covenant he invites us to embrace with everything that we are and in every area of our lives. And it's living in response to that and letting that shape us and everything else around us that changes everything that God might have his way in our lives is my prayer this morning.